Welcome to the Horses Equine Innovators podcast, sponsored by Zoetis. I'm your host, Stephanie Church, Editor-in-Chief at The Horse. Every day, researchers at universities and other institutions around the world are investigating new ways to care for and understand our horses in the horse industry. In this podcast series, we talk to those innovators to learn more about their work. In today's episode, we are talking about equine reproduction. Right now, here in central Kentucky, it's midwinter, a time when horse owners, farm managers, and veterinarians are either fulling out mares or watching those bellies grow as the mares near their due dates. Many mares have dodged or overcome threats to their fertility and pregnancies along the way, thanks to researchers dedicated to understanding the hormones, physiological processes, and other aspects of equine pregnancy. Our guest today is Dr. Barry Ball of the University of Kentucky. Dr. Ball is the Albert G. Clay Endowed Chair in Equine Reproduction at the University's Kluck Equine Research Center. Dr. Ball has dedicated 35 years to the study of equine reproduction. Welcome, Dr. Ball. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Stephanie. It's, it's great to be here. So starting off, could you describe a little bit about your background and how you ended up studying equine reproduction in the first place? Sure. I, um, I was raised on a small beef cattle and burley tobacco farm in southwest Virginia, not too far from Lexington, in fact. Oh, wow. I did my undergraduate studies at Virginia Tech in animal science, uh, went on to the University of Georgia for veterinary school. Then I spent a year in practice in Abingdon, Virginia, near my home, uh, in a large animal practice that did beef cattle, dairy cattle, and horses. Um, I had always had an interest in reproduction as an undergraduate, uh, and that motivated me in looking at residencies uh, in theriogenology or clinical reproduction, which I started one in 1982 at the University of Florida. Mm -hmm. And it was there uh, under the tutelage of folks like Woody Asbury and Michelle LeBlanc that I really gained an interest in equine reproduction. After I finished the residency at Florida, I went on to do a PhD at Cornell. And that PhD was directed toward uh, aspects of early embryonic loss in mares. And, and one of the primary findings that came out of that work uh, was that in the aged subfertile mare, a lot of the infertility that we see is attributed to early embryonic loss, that a lot of those mares are pregnant in the first week or so of gestation, but the losses occur before we actually can detect pregnancy with ultrasound. And that was something that was similar to findings in other species. After I finished the PhD at Cornell, I stayed on there on faculty for about nine years. Uh, in 1996, I uh, was asked to apply and was successful for the, for the position of John Hughes Chair in Reproduction at University of California at Davis. And so for the next 14 years at Davis, I did clinics and teaching and research uh, related to reproduction. I was fortunate about midway through that stay to become or be awarded a Fulbright Senior Scholarship at the University of Cambridge. So I spent a year working with Twink Allen in his lab at Newmarket and, and gained some perspective on uh, aspects of the clinical practice in Newmarket and surrounding areas. Mm -hmm. and, and then in 2010, um, the clay chair became open at the University of Kentucky and I successfully applied and uh, have been here since for the intervening 11 years. Wow, I didn't realize that you had worked under uh, Professor Allen and 
Dr. LeBlanc and Dr. Asbury. They're such greats in this field. They were indeed. So what are a few of the specific areas you studied during your time at Gluck? Well, we've had a fairly diverse research program uh, because the needs are many and, and we were trying to address as many as we could. But we focused in particular on normal and abnormal endocrinology in the pregnant mare and to a lesser extent in the stallion and non-pregnant mare. We spent a lot of time looking at normal and abnormal function of the placenta in the horse, particularly as it relates to things like nocardiform placentitis and ascending placentitis. Uh, we've done work looking at the effects of diet on early pregnancy and mare fertility. Uh, and we've had an interest uh, in aspects of contraception and sterilization in the horse, particularly as it relates to methods to control populations of feral horse, which you know is a real problem in the Western US. You've covered a lot of ground, it sounds like. So why don't we start by talking about placental function? What do our listeners need to know about the equine placenta and how it works? Well, the placenta in the horse is like most mammals. It has the basic functions of providing nutrition, uh, oxygen, removing waste and CO2, and regulating fetal growth and development. Uh, and that's true for the horse as well. But the equine placenta and equine pregnancy is somewhat unique compared to the other domestic animals and a lot of other mammals as well. Um, because it has a fairly unique endocrinology. Mm -hmm. So during equine pregnancy, uh, the steroid hormones, estrogen and progestins, uh, are both produced in relatively large amounts. Estradiol is produced uh, beginning as early as around day eight or nine uh, by the conceptus, and it continues to increase in production till we can measure it peripherally in the mare's blood, beginning at around day 40 to 60, and then reaches a peak at around, oh, seven or eight months of gestation in, uh -huh. in relatively large concentrations. Uh, it is the product of the fetus and placenta. So the fetus, the fetal gonad actually, produces the precursor androgen that's converted by the placenta into estrogens. And those estrogens show up in the mare circulation. And we don't really have a great idea of what the function of those estrogens are. Uh, in other species, those estrogens are thought to play a role in placental vascular development. The placenta is a very highly vascular tissue because it has to have a lot of blood flow to meet the demands of the fetus, particularly as you get into late gestation. The fetal growth is occurring mostly in the last third of pregnancy. So one of the questions we tried to answer, and I think we did answer to some extent, is what happens if we block estrogen formation? Uh, so there's some enzyme inhibitors, one called letrozole that we used in pregnant marriage beginning around eight months of gestation, which block an enzyme called aromatase. And aromatase is the enzyme responsible for the production of estrogens by the placenta. Mm -hmm. And we found we could knock down these peripheral estrogens, or circulating estrogens in the mare by as much as 90 plus percent, wow. which we did for the last several months of pregnancy. Uh, and in doing that, we wanted to see what's the outcome on the pregnancy. Fetal growth, uh, blood flow to the uterus and placenta, uh, is the fetus normal at birth, so forth. And interestingly, even though we suppressed estrogens by more than 90%, we uh, didn't see differences in gestation length. The folds were normal at birth. Uh, mammary development was normal. The only change we did see was that fetal growth was reduced by about 15%. Uh, hmm. 
we think, uh, even though we couldn't measure changes in blood flow in the uterine artery, that it may still have had effects on the placental microvasculature, the capillaries and the branching of the capillaries that are important ultimately in placental exchange. Um, so give us a handle on what those estrogens did. It didn't give us necessarily the, the conclusive answer that we were looking for. The other piece of that puzzle for the mare that is, again, somewhat unique, shared a little bit with the elephant uh, in terms of the kinds of progesterones that they see, is progesterone metabolism. And everyone is probably, or most folks are going to be familiar with progesterone as the hormone that's produced uh, by the corpus luteum after ovulation uh, and is responsible for maintenance of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And the mare has that as well, but she also produces another type of progestin called 5-alpha-dihydroprogesterone. So a big name, but it really is, it's a reduced form of progesterone that we'll call DHP. Okay. And DHP is present in relatively high concentrations in early pregnancy. We did some work in collaboration with Al Conley at UC Davis uh, to show that DHP is in fact bioactive, that it could maintain pregnancy in the absence of progesterone. And in fact, that's exactly what it does throughout most of gestation. So beginning around day 100, progesterone coming from the corpus lutea of the mare is reduced to almost baseline. DHP coming from the placenta becomes the predominant progesterone in the circulation. Uh, and it remains relatively high until about 10 months of pregnancy, and then it goes way up, and then it comes down again just before term. Now, most of that, again, is a placental function, so the progesterone is being synthesized or the DHP and some related molecules are being synthesized in the in the placenta mm -hmm. uh, in relatively high concentrations. That creates some confusion for the veterinarian because the assays that we use to measure progesterone variably measure these other progestins. Uh, right. And it's because of the antibody that's used and what it recognizes as progesterone. So the assays can become quite variable. We were able to use a technique called liquid chromatography and mass spectrometry, mm -hmm. uh, which lets us look at these specific progesterones definitively so that we can measure the changes in peripheral circulation. So those are aspects of pregnancy that we're interested in. We also wanted mm -hmm. to look at what happens at birth in most of the domestic animals. Uh, estrogens go up and progestins come down at birth. And yet, when you look at what's happening in the mare, estrogens are coming down and progestins look to be going up. But if you look with mass spec in the last few days of gestation, you'll find that in fact, progestins are coming down. They are declining pretty rapidly because the enzymes in the placenta that make them are shutting off. Uh, so we see a similar change in the horse, but not quite in the same pattern that we see in other domestic animals. Okay. Thank you. You know, I've never heard the horse compared to an elephant before. That's a new one for me. Well, the elephant uses DHP as, as its primary source of progestin as well for pre pregnancy maintenance. So in that regard, it's, it's quite similar. Hmm. But we've done some other things. If, if you'd like, we can chat about as far as placental function uh, all day, in fact, because we've done quite a bit of work there. As I said earlier, regulation of placental vasculature is an important effect in terms of supporting the fetus, because it takes a lot of blood flow for placental exchange, particularly as you get into late pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And some interesting work, kind of novel bioinformatics work that was done by Puya Denny, who's, who's now at UC Davis, 
uh, looked at the role of maternal versus paternal genes on gene expression. Uh, and one of the genes that comes up in looking at those analyses is something called RTO1. RTO1 is principally expressed by the paternal genes, so the genes coming from the father, mm-hmm. and is conversely regulated by other genes uh, coming from the mother. And so it's pretty clear that the sire, or the in this case, the stallion, is influencing uh, placental development in favor of fetal growth. And that's generally the model that we see in most of biology is that the, the sire likes to see a large, well-grown fetus the dam has to conserve energy and conserve resources, and so her genes tend to favor a less well-developed or smaller fetus. So blood flow is one of those factors. That's really um, interesting. And we started looking at these changes in vascular development as they relate to a, a clinical condition in the horse called hydrops. Oh, yeah. And hydrops mm-hmm. is not very common in the horse, uh, uh, but we do see cases that basically involve the accumulation of large abnormal amounts of fetal fluids and edema of the placenta. When we looked at the gene expression and vascular development of the placenta, we were able to show that RTO1 expression was decreased. So there's the genes that are favoring placental development or vascular development were reduced. Uh, that placental vascular development was reduced um, in these mares with high drops. So there are some effects that we can measure uh, pretty specifically that seem to be related to this disease. It also implies, although not definitively, that the stallion may have a bigger role in conditions like high drops than we've thought in the past. That's really interesting. Um, you know, I, I think about, you know, I've, my family has only ever bred three foals over the year. And, um, I wasn't there when they fold, but you know, I've been there at foldings before and I've seen people collect the placenta and look at it. And um, really, you know, it's an organ that forms right during gestation, you know, it wasn't there before, it's there now. And it's so interesting, the the vascular aspect of it and the contributions of the sire that you're describing. You can tell a lot from the um, placenta after it's been expelled, right? Well, I think it's always something that that's good to examine uh, to be sure, A, that it's all there because retained pieces of the placenta can cause a problem for the mare, mm-hmm. uh, but also areas that the villi or the little red velvety covering is missing uh, because that basically mirrors the uh, the lining of the uterus. So we know that as mares get older, sometimes they get scarring and damage to the uterus and, and villus formation is impaired, which can reduce fetal growth. Uh, so yeah, you can grossly with there's quite a lot histologically. There's a lot that can be ter- determined by looking microscopically. Uh, there's lots of testing. We've extended that evaluation though to look at at gene expression, mm-hmm. and that's where most of this data that I'll talk about today comes from is looking at the entire pattern of gene expression in the tissue uh, based on high throughput sequencing gives us a whole new perspective in terms of changes in the placenta that that may be important. And, and uh, there's another one I can talk about if we've got a second. Sure. And that's related to red bag placenta or premature placental separation. Yes. Um, that is a relatively common problem in the horse. And just to put everyone on the same page, red bag placentas are, are formed or occur when the placenta separates from the uterine lining without rupturing. And so the usual presentation for these is that the chorion, the red velvety membrane, appears at the vulva first, 
rather than the amnion, the white slick membrane that usually surrounds the fetus. The problem with the premature separation is that uh, as the placenta starts to separate, it loses the ability to exchange oxygen. So fetal asphyxia or suffocation is, is a real concern. Mm-hmm. So in 2019, we had a visiting scientist from Japan, Dr. Murase, who did a study looking at red bag placentas. Uh, we collected these from the diagnostic lab and also on the farm and looked at changes in gene expression. So again, we're looking at thousands of genes. Uh, and he was able to identify, I think it was 2,500 genes in the red bag placenta that changed expression compared to the normal postpartum placenta, um, which is a huge number of genes and you'd go insane trying to look at each one individually. Uh, so the techniques that are used there are to, to use pathway analysis. And here is a place that we can take advantage of information from other species like the human and the mouse, because there's a lot of information there to, to sort of put these changes into some kind of perspective. And when you look at the red bag placenta, not surprisingly, connective tissue changes are high on the list. So collagen, which forms the basis of most of the strong underlying tissues in the placenta, uh, is different. The enzymes that degrade collagen, proteases, uh, are also differently expressed as well as changes in inflammation, which we knew already, and also genes associated with hypoxia of the tissue. So all those things seem to be feeding into this loop that causes or is associated with red bag placenta, which is something we've really had very little information on in the past beyond the clinical presentation and pathology that we could describe. Wow, you guys have learned a lot from the gene expression, that's for sure. So going back to placentitis, which you mentioned earlier, uh, could you describe a time when you faced multiple cases of placentitis? Well, the, probably the most common one and the most well-known in central Kentucky would be nocardiform placentitis. Those, that particular problem has occurred over episodically over the past 30 years uh, as not really outbreaks, but certainly increased numbers of cases showing up in some years as opposed to others. Um, ascending placentitis or bacterial placentitis in the mare is usually not seen as an outbreak per se. Well, that's usually more sporadic, although it's still a problem in terms of fetal death and, and compromise. Okay. Uh, so the cardioform placentitis would be the one that's, that's probably most relevant to not outbreaks, but at least increased incidences uh, of the diseases that we deal with regularly. And so why does no cardioform placentitis happen? That's the million dollar question. <laughs> um, I mean, things we've learned about it give us some insight, but we really don't understand the, the overall pathogenesis. One of the one of the things we do have pretty good information on is over the last 30 years, looking at at the association of climate and the incidence of this disease. And one of the things we described was that if you have weather in August and September, late summer, mm-hmm. that is unusually hot and unusually dry, the number of cases of the cardioform placentitis that will appear the following winter and spring will be increased. Uh, so there's a pretty strong statistical interaction between those variables and the incidence in the cardioform placentitis. Why is still not clear. Uh, I think it's very likely some kind of environmental variable that's associated with those climate changes, but we don't 
yet know what that variable is or variables are. Um, we have some guesses, but we really don't have a firm idea. Um, but beyond that, we tried to, to cause this disease because one of the problems in trying to study it is its incidence is very sporadic and unpredictable to some extent. Mm -hmm. uh, so we did a series of experimental inoculations in mares, giving large doses of the bacteria that cause the disease intravenously, orally, intrapharyngeally, uh, just trying to see if we could replicate the disease, which we were not able to do successfully. So there's clearly some other factors other than just the bacteria that are important in causing the cardioform placentitis. Okay, thank you. So we have touched on endocrinology already in some of our other discussions, but uh, what constitutes normal versus abnormal endocrine function as it relates to equine fertility and pregnancy? That's a broad question. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> some of the things that, that we've done that might touch on that a little bit, in the non-pregnant mare, we have um, looked at a hormone called anti-mullerian hormone, or AMH. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a hormone that's produced by the gonad, either by the ovary or by the testis, and has some important functions in the, in the female. It seems in the mare, it seems to regulate the populations of small follicles that grow and develop into large follicles. That's its normal function. But it's also become a very useful marker for conditions like granulosa cell tumors, because granulosa cell tumors, for the most part, express a lot of AMH. And we can measure that concentration in peripheral blood in the mare as a diagnostic marker. And it's really become, I think, the, the gold standard at this point for the endocrine diagnosis of granulosa cell tumors is, has been AMH. Okay. It's also produced in the testis, and it can be used as a marker for cryptorchidism in the, in the stallion. Mm -hmm. um, if there is an in, a stallion or a gelding that has a questionable history in terms of castration, then it's one of the tools that can be used to look for evidence of a retained testis. We were interested in it also because it is associated with something called follicular reserve. And, and the idea behind that was that in most mammals that have been studied, the number of follicles that are present in the ovary at or around birth is maximal. And the number of oocytes then continuously decline throughout the life of the female until they are depleted. Uh, yes. In women, that can be associated with menopause. The horse doesn't really have a menopause, but older mares can undergo reproductive senescence. So they, they basically have very few follicles and, and don't ovulate or have mm -hmm. irregular estrus periods. Uh, and we are able to show that AMH can, to some extent, predict populations of follicles on the ovary. Um, and that it also can be a predictive marker for fertility. Uh, so as AMH declines in the older mare, the population of follicles declines, the number of normal oocytes available is reduced, the incidence of embryo loss goes up. And we can show that on a population basis, although using it individually to predict that for a single mare becomes a, a much more challenging enterprise. So, um, Going back to granulosa cell tumors, can you uh, maybe briefly explain the significance of those? What, do they, what effects do they have on the mare? Sure. Granulosa cell tumors are probably the most common, they are the most common gonadal tumor in the mare and one of the more common tumors in the horse generally. Mm -hmm. um, they form, uh, the ovary becomes enlarged. Eventually the opposite ovary, if, if it's not affected, which it usually isn't, 
becomes shut is shut down because of inhibition by endocrine products from the tumor. And these mares can present different types of behavioral changes. The one that's most pronounced is that they become stallion-like. So they'll become aggressive, they'll mount other mares, uh, they'll show some behavioral pro problems that are pretty dramatic in some cases. They can also stop cycling uh, to some extent, or they can have persistent asterisks. That's much less common. Uh, so the common presentation is a mare that's, that's showing a lot of stallion-like behavior uh, and not having normal reproductive cycles. Okay. Now, um, you mentioned earlier that you've done some work on feeding the broodmare. Can you tell us a little about what you learned in that research? Sure. It's, uh, this has been an interest for some time, and it was, was motivated by anecdotes from veterinarians and nutritionists in this area that indicated that they occasionally saw problems with mares, with fertility problems and embryo loss problems in particular in mares in early gestation in, on lush spring pastures. And, and that's been described a number of times through the years. Uh, Dr. Swerzyk, for example, has, has described those kinds of problems. But mm -hmm. we haven't had a very good handle on what's actually going on. There's, a, there's research in cattle that suggests that if you feed them a very high protein diet, one of the things that you will eventually affect is circulating concentrations of urea. Urea is a, a nitrogenous waste, waste product that's produced um, and excreted normally, uh, but with deamination of proteins or removing am ammonia groups from proteins, one of the things you do is you start to bump up concentrations of circulating urea in the blood, in reproductive tissues, in the follicular fluid, and so forth. And there's pretty clear evidence in cattle that excessive dietary protein can cause problems with early fertility and embryo loss. So we, we wanted to ask the same question for the mare, and we basically created a model that involved feeding mares urea as a supplement. And by doing so, we can, we can increase their urea concentrations in blood pretty dramatically uh, and looked at changes in things like uterine pH. So when you, when you feed the mare urea, you can change the pH of the uterine environment. You can alter compositions of follicular fluid and blastocele fluid. Uh, so there are measurable changes in early reproduction as well as changes in gene expression uh, in the endometrium or uterine lining associated with feeding urea. So we at least established the proof of principle that urea concentrations can have measurable effects on the reproductive tract. We have some preliminary, and I will emphasize that it is preliminary data, indicating that urea concentrations in mares in the field are also associated with fertility and embryo loss. Uh, those are preliminary data, not, not by any means definitive, but enough to, I think, point the direction that one of the things we should be considering is mares that are on lush spring pasture receiving a lot of supplement in terms of concentrate, um, that might be a consideration in terms of effects in some of these previously described outbreaks of, of reduced fertility and embryo loss, that mm -hmm. that would be an area that needs to be explored further. That's really interesting. So you also had mentioned earlier on some interesting work that you've done on contraception and sterilization in the mare. Um, could you describe what you and your colleagues determined with that research? Sure. Uh, this has been an interest for a long time. Uh, having spent time in, in California, I got involved a little bit with the feral horse problem in the West. 
and as you're probably aware, it's, it is continues to be a significant problem for the Bureau of Land Management uh, in terms of balancing the needs and demands, pasture and grazing land for animals in the West with the ever-growing population of feral or wild horses. Uh, and one of the solutions has been to try to regulate reproduction, which which turns out not to be an easy thing to do. Uh, there have been a lot of different attempts through the years. None have been terribly successful uh, beyond perhaps vaccinating mares against uh, zona pellucida antigen. Uh, so we we undertook a project to try to develop a rapid method for, for basically sterilization of mares mm-hmm. that involved placing a, ligar- a ligature around the ovarian pedicle to basically shut off ovarian blood flow and, and sterilize the mare. That didn't work well, I would say, <laughs> so we had to abandon that. But we then tied, uh, tied up with an investigator at Tufts University, Dr. Carlos Gradil, who had developed a intrauterine device, a, a novel intrauterine device that um, basically assembles itself in the uterus. It's inserted oh, yeah. through the cervix forms together to make a, a unit that can later be removed. And the retention seems to be good. Uh, contraception seems to be good. Adverse side effects don't seem to be too severe. And the testing in that is still continuing. But although I think they're now ready to start taking that into the field and and putting it into a larger number of animals. So mm-hmm. I am enthused that that, that may offer a, a cheap, easily uh, applied and long, relatively long-term effect effect for contraception in the feral horse, which may also have some application for the domestic horse. Not not so often, but um, there might mm-hmm. be a few cases where that would be of value. I think uh, we have a story, I believe, with a photo of that um, device that they put into the mare that kind of assembles itself. We'll have to provide a link to that in the show notes because it is pretty interesting. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great idea and it looks like it's coming together for them. So. Yes. Yeah, so what our listeners might not know is that as we are recording this episode, Dr. Ball is preparing to retire next week. Your biographical sketch notes that you have mentored about 50 individuals from PhDs and master's students to postdocs and other professionals over your career. So tell us about that aspect of your job. Sure. That's, I think that's been one of the more rewarding parts of being an academician and being involved in research and clinics and teaching through the years is mentoring the next generation of clinicians and scientists uh, in the discipline of reproduction. It's given me an opportunity to work with some of the best and brightest minds and and really a a broad diversity of people from literally all over the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, from a researcher's perspective, two things I see my goals as twofold. One is to publish research that's eventually to conduct research that's eventually published in peer-reviewed journals. So there's a record of that research for future use and reference, and also to train the next generation of scientists. And and I think in particular, it's been very rewarding for me to follow the careers of some of these individuals as they have, in fact, exceeded my output as far as a researcher and and have gone on to do great things. I think that really is an important mark for a mentor in terms of their trainees is that they go on and exceed the, the mentor's standard. So. Mm-hmm. That's great. Congratulations on that. So what have you enjoyed most about conducting research in this region of the horse industry? Central Kentucky is pretty special in that we are focused on horses here. 
Indeed. And, and you know, from a long experience in Central Kentucky, I've really enjoyed working with the veterinarians here. Mm-hmm. I think as a group, they're extremely talented, experienced, uh, they're inquisitive, they're always willing to help in terms of, of research projects that we'd like to conduct. To give an example, even uh, in 2020, we were doing a large study with nocardiform placentitis in the midst of the outbreak of the, pan- of the coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, they didn't flinch. They, they, they kept right up. The studies continued and we gathered a lot of information and samples for that, that work. Wow. The same can be said for the farm managers, the uh, farm owners, the farm personnel. They've, they've been great to work with. They've, uh, they've gone out of their way to, to get these studies done and helping us. And then the, the pathologist and the crew at the veterinary diagnostic lab has been a tremendous resource. They are also mm. have been integral in a lot of the work that we've done in terms of trying to answer some of these questions. And I've really enjoyed the opportunity to interact and work with them. So looking back on the past 35 years, what research makes you the most proud? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, now, I think it's been the work that we've done most recently uh, in terms of of applying sort of what's termed high dimensional biology or high throughput biology, these techniques of of looking at thousands of genes Mm -hmm. at one time or to look at all the proteins in a sample or all the lipids in a sample uh, and be able to quantify and identify each one uh, has been a tremendous movement. And I think it it will be the basis for a lot of biological sciences going forward. So I think that work as it relates to late pregnancy, placenta, cervix, myometrium, endometrium uh, in the mare has been a real boon for us. And, and I think it's, it's, it's work, I hope, that will be the basis for further research in, in addressing some of these pressing questions. Okay, thank you. Dr. Ball, as you retire, you're leaving quite a legacy in equine reproduction research. Where do you see this research field headed next? Well, again, I think the, 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 the availability of these techniques will have a huge impact. And it's one of the things that we've worked hard over the last several years to be sure that our trainees are, are up to speed in terms of using and applying these techniques. Uh, and I think we've done that to some extent. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that will have a big influence on events. Uh, continuing to do field studies so that we can take the, the work that's been done in the lab into the field and, and confirm that, in fact, the models that we use in the lab uh, are valid in, in the broader setting of the population of animals that we're interested in. And I can tell you that's not always true. We found that in some of the work that we've done is that although it works well in the research model, you take it into the field, things become much more complicated and, and sometimes mm-hmm. difficult to understand. So I think those are all things that will will help the next generation or the next clay chair to move ahead is the ability to interact with the veterinarians and the farm managers in the field and, and how, um, how their questions are being addressed by research that we're doing at the Gluck Center. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Ball, for sharing your time and expertise with us today. It's been my pleasure, Stephanie. Thank you very much. I also want to thank our sponsor, Zoetis. For more from the horse, visit thehorse.com, sign up for our newsletters, or look for Ask the Horse Live wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. 
If you like what you've been listening to and learning, please do all the things you would do to support a podcast you enjoy. Rate, subscribe, review, and share it with your friends. Please join us next time as we talk with the horse industry equine innovators.